Uh, during his ministry, Jesus was known as a traveling teacher uh, and a healer. That was kind of his reputation, this guy who travels around and teaches. Um, and in the next five weeks in this series, we're going to look at five key moments of Jesus's teaching. We're going to try to put ourselves kind of in the audience, like we're there in the first century trying to hear him speak as if we were there. And that's why we're calling this series Jesus in his own words. And one of the most distinctive aspects of Jesus's teaching was his consistent use um, of parables. Parables, I'll just put a little definition up here, um, is a short story that illustrates a spiritual truth. He, he, he would tell these all the time. In fact, in the New Testament, of uh, the teachings of Jesus that are recorded, about a third of them uh, are, a third of it is in parables. And so uh, the fact that he told these sh- uh, short stories, this is really a hallmark of his ministry. I mean, if you knew Jesus or saw him in the first century, you would have probably described him as this like brilliant storyteller. Um, and what's really fascinating about that is there's really no evidence in history before Jesus of any teacher uh, using parables so consistently and so effectively. Um, there are similar things. I mean, you had like Aesop's fables in the Greek world, which were kind of like that, but not really. They were kind of just sort of morals about life and usually it was animals, you know, tortoise and the hare, stuff like that. So it wasn't really the same kind of thing. Uh, and, and even in the Jewish world, uh, there was not a huge precedent of this. In fact, many scholars basically believe that there's kind of one parable in the whole Old Testament that is undeniably a parable. And for those of you who are going to go Google it now, I'll just tell you, uh, it was when the prophet Nathan confronted King David about his affair with Bathsheba. He tells him a parable. And so uh, it was something very innovative that Jesus did in teaching through parables. And, and when he would tell these stories, he would draw from everyday life. So you think about kind of ancient agricultural context uh, of ancient Israel. That was the world that he's living in, that, that he's traveling around and he's teaching in. And so he drew from that. And so not surprisingly, his parables talked about agriculture and livestock and planting and harvesting and vines and all those things. And that can sometimes strike us as a little bit strange because as far as I know, none of us are ancient farmers in this room. And so the details of their lives are very different than our lives. But if Jesus were around today teaching in the same manner, he would be teaching in parables about things like neighborhoods and traffic jams and sports teams and grocery stores and schools and selfies and just everything, all the details of our lives would find their way into um, the way he taught because he was telling these stories to convey truth in a memorable and engaging way, in a surprising way, because the purpose of these parables, as he was telling the story, was to surprise the listener, reverse the thinking of the listener, and really invite life change. And so we're going to look at five parables in this series, Uh, and today we're going to begin with a parable that is about eternal life. It's about heaven. It's about God's eternal plans. Um, What's really interesting is as diverse as our country is and our county and um, the West generally, as diverse as it is, we have a remarkably consistent imagination when it comes to heaven. Especially like the arrival at heaven, you know, you've seen this stereotypical scene, you know, somebody arrives at kind of like the pearly gates God's there to meet them. Maybe it's Peter or like an angel. You know, maybe they're floating on some clouds and there's kind of like a list. Are you on the list? You know, am I going to let you in or not? That scene is just kind of in our minds. It's everywhere. And so I compiled a list of a few examples I want to go through with you just to illustrate how 
popular this is. So The Simpsons has this, of course. You have Homer arriving at the pearly gates. I think that actually was supposed to be Peter from the episode. And he's got a, you know, his clipboard, you know, are you on the list to get into heaven? So there's one example. And then, of course, all kinds of other things. The cover of The New Yorker, um, after Steve Jobs died, showed him um, arriving in heaven. You go back to that one. Thanks. And, and uh, they've got an iPad for the list. <laughs> so, so there's a variation on it. Of course, in the movies, we see it as well. Um, Bruce Almighty, it's a little bit of a variation of it. He's got the file cabinet, you know, with like every thought and action of the character Bruce Nolan, you know, evaluating his life. Um, and then I've got a few more cartoons here I thought that were pretty funny. Uh, here's one. Actually, Santa and I use completely separate lists. I thought that was a good one. Um, here's another one. Uh, George Steinbrenner, longtime owner of the New York Yankees, arriving. Can I help you? A bunch of Boston Red Sox fans. And then I think this last one's my personal favorite. What about that day in 1922 when you said shut up to your mother? Um, <laughs> but this kind of scene is just, it's in our imagination. And when you kind of zoom out and you look at all of them and, and all the variations of this that we see in our culture, what do they tell us? You know, about us, about God, about heaven. I think sometimes we can sort of think they're like more or less accurate, this kind of thing, because, you know, the Bible talks about heaven, talks about, you know, sins and that sort of thing. So like, yeah, it's more or less that's going to happen. I think we can, a lot of us can kind of come into that thinking, but these are not accurate. They're not biblical pictures. In fact, they teach something very false and destructive about us and more importantly, about God. Because what do these tell us about ourselves? They tell us that our acceptance by God, our admittance into heaven, his house, God's house, is based on our merit. Our life, it's just like, uh, our life is just the sum total of our thoughts and words and actions, and we'll get there and like, hopefully we're good enough to get in. Hopefully the good outweighs the bad. Hopefully we'll be on God's nice list. I actually thought that Santa one was pretty insightful because I do think we can sometimes in our culture think that, that like we just got to get on God's nice list. That, that's the goal. But that's not a biblical picture. The gospel teaches us that our relationship with God and the promise of eternal life is not based on our good deeds in any way. It's based on grace. It's based on Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. So that's one of the distortions of these kind of popular uh, visions of, of heaven. But let's think about the other distortion. What do these tell us about God? These presume God doesn't really care if we get in. I mean, have you ever seen a depiction like this in which the gatekeeper, if it's God, wants the person to come in, is joyfully welcoming the person home? I, I haven't seen any like that. These paint God as sort of, you know, his role is just to kind of apply the rules. He's like this celestial bureaucrat, right? Do you, you might be good enough. You might not be. Either way, I'm fine with it. It's kind of, that's how God's being depicted, is that the rules are what matter, and, and it's like God has a gate around his house, and his main goal is to keep people out. That's the picture. That picture could not be further from the God described in the Bible. A loving, personal God who gave everything to rescue us and bring us home. And Jesus spoke about this. He spoke about God's house, about heaven, eternal life, how God views us. Jesus spoke about this, and he paints a very different picture. 
Um, and the parable we're going to look at today is going to address that. And so the question, kind of the question behind everything we're going to talk about today is this. Who does God want in his house? Who does God want in his house? And we're going to explore that together. So if you brought your Bible with you, open to Luke 14, verse 16. Luke 14, 16. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, um, up here we have a little layout here. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is the third book in the New Testament. We have Bibles on the table. Feel free to pick up one of those. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you. We'd love for that to be uh, our gift to you. We are also, though, going to have the Scripture on the screens if you want to uh, follow along in that way. But we have highlighters and pens and stuff in the basket. So if you want to have a Bible and mark it up and highlight, uh, we encourage you to do that. We like to do that here on Sundays. So we're going to read today in Luke 14, starting in verse 16, uh, what, what scholars have called um, the parable of the great banquet. And I want to just kind of read it through once, because that's how Jesus would have told it, is in kind of one um, block. He wouldn't have broken it up, but, but then we'll come back and we'll pull out some things. Um, so let's get into it. Verse 16, it says this, Jesus replied... Okay, just kidding, we're going to stop right there. <laughs> we, got, we got two, two words in, so I... I I didn't make it all the way through, but we're going to stop there. And here's why. When you're reading scripture and reading, you know, the parables especially, and you see something like Jesus replied, that's a big deal to notice. Because that means this parable he's about to tell was a response to something that was going on. And Jesus was having conversations, and these parables often just flowed out of the conversations he was having. So who he's saying it to and why he's saying it matters. It actually helps us understand what it was about. So just really quickly, a little bit, if you were to back up a little bit in Luke 14, you would see that Jesus um, had himself been invited to a banquet. Um, he was, he was, he'd been invited to this banquet. He's eating in the home of a Pharisee. Uh, the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders at the time who were not fans of Jesus. Uh, they didn't think he really followed the rules. And they're kind of look, trying to figure him out and find ways to kind of accuse him. And so they invite him over, and he's, he's there. And Jesus is observing some things about the Pharisees at this dinner. He's observing they're too preoccupied with the rules and morality, and they're neglecting the needs of people in the community, you know, the poor and the sick. They're, they're, they're neglecting that. Jesus uh, observes that they enjoy too much the prominent seats at the table. They seem a little preoccupied with that. Jesus also observes that the only people who were invited were really, you know, friends and, and family close, people who could repay the favor. But there was nobody invited who could, like, not repay the invitation. They weren't inviting people in need in the community. And Jesus observes these things, and he tells them that he sees this in them. And he doesn't <laughs> shy away from calling it like he sees it. So he tells them what he's, what he's seeing in them, and he senses that they don't really understand God's heart. You know, they're professionally religious, but they're missing the big picture. And so he's at this banquet he's been invited to, and he's engaging with the religious authorities at the time, and he tells this parable to them. And so just imagine yourself there sitting at this table with Jesus. He's been invited to this banquet, and he's about to say this parable. Now let me read it. So Jesus says, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. 
The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So that's the parable. Let's unpack it a little bit and see really what he was saying. When you start in verse 16, uh, it says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. If you're taking notes, I would highlight that phrase, invited many guests. It says, verse 17, at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who'd been invited, come, everything's ready. So here's what's happening. He's, he's prepared this banquet. Maybe it's a wedding feast or something, a celebration. Um, and he invites all of these guests. In the original language of uh, Greek that this was written in, it literally says he called many guests to his home. He called them. And the guests presumably would have been friends and family and that sort of thing. And he says, all right, it's all ready. The food's ready. We're ready to go. Tells his servant, go tell everybody. You know, this thing's ready to go. Come on. The food's hot. Let's go. And so he sends him out. Verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. Highlight that word, excuses, if you're taking notes. Excuses. And we see several examples of this. Bought a field, bought some oxen, just got married. And so they're not going to come. And so the servant comes home to his master and is like, I got bad news. Like, <laughs> they ain't coming. And, I mean, think about that. This man, you know, he prepares this banquet. All the work and investment and expense that entails. And right when it's time to eat, everybody starts flaking out. For family reasons, economic reasons, the guests who've been called are not coming to the table. And this would have shocked his listeners, by the way, when Jesus is telling this parable in that culture in particular, which is very focused on hospitality. I mean, this was just like a very offensive thing that these people are not coming when he's done so much to invite them in. So there's a scandal that they the invited guests wouldn't come. So how does the master respond to this news? He does something even more shocking than the fact that the guests didn't come. So let's keep reading. It says, Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys. Highlight that if you're taking notes. Streets and alleys. Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in, and then highlight this whole phrase, The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. You see, the, the owner's anger, his indignation over the fact that the invited guests weren't coming didn't steer him to, you know, cynicism or, oh, this is all a waste of time. He, no, it drives him toward this countercultural kindness. And he says, you know what? I want you to go out into the streets and alleys and bring these other people in. Those words, streets and alleys, I had you highlight um, in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in. Those refer to kind of public squares and roads within the town. So he says, go out in, into the town where we are and, and bring in these people who would never be invited to a feast like this. The poor, uh, the crippled, the outcasts on the fringe, bring them in. I want them to enjoy this feast. Bring in the people who have nothing, maybe have no one, and could never pay me back for this. Bring them in. I want them here. Now get your highlighters ready. The next two verses are just packed uh, with meaning. Uh, Verse 22. 
Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Highlight that. There is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes. Highlight that. Roads and country lanes. And compel them to come in. Highlight that word, compel. Compel them to come in so that, circle those two words, that's a clue. He's about to give you the reason for all of this. So that, and then highlight the reason, my house will be full. So that my house will be full. He says there's still room. Go out to the roads and country lanes. Those words are different than the words in the previous couple of verses. Those refer to the rural areas outside of town. He's telling his servant, don't just stop in the city. There's more people. There's more room. Go out into the surrounding countryside and find more people and compel them to come in. Now, compel might strike us a little strange in English, like that's a little pushy, compel them to come. But the connotation in the original language isn't quite that. It's more like um, urge them passionately, insist. You've got to come. You've got to be there. Urge them to come to the house and enjoy this banquet so that my house will be full. And this is what I don't want you to miss, is that the man giving the banquet in the parable who represents God is not neutral on whether people come to his house. He wants his house to be full. He wants them to come in. The question he's asking is not, how do I keep people out of here? It's how can I get as many people as possible in? The final verse of the parable that I read technically isn't the parable. That's the end of the parable. And then in verse uh, 24, uh, Jesus turns to his audience and makes one final comment. Um, He says, I tell you, and in Greek, that's a plural you. So it's like, I tell y'all. He's talking to the Pharisees at the table. I tell you. Not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. So Jesus was telling them and us, there's no way into God's house other than to accept his invitation. You can't work your way there. You can't deserve it. You can't earn it. He was implying to the Pharisees pretty strongly, you might be missing out on this. You might be missing out on the feast. You might be completely misunderstanding who God is and how he views you. So the question that I I said earlier kind of frames this um, parable that we're exploring today is, who does God want in his house? And the answer is, is short and sweet, but it's true. Everyone. Who does God want in his house? Everyone. Now, I want to clarify, that does not mean everyone will come to know God. That does not mean everybody will respond to the invitation but he wants everyone to. And I think sometimes we, we think we just kind of live life, we just try to be good and just sort of see where we end up at, at the end of it. I think those cartoons I showed you earlier, that's kind of the thinking behind that. You know, I'll just try to be good and you know, hopefully God will be okay with it in the end. That is not a biblical view at all. The truth is the default for everyone is separation from God because of our sin. And it required God's intervention to rescue us from that and to bring us home. But be encouraged, this parable and many other places in Scripture teach us very clearly, God wants us to come home. 
He wants us there. It is his heart's desire. Like the man in the parable, he wants his table to be full. But there were many invited guests who did not show up, who did not respond to the invitation for a variety of reasons. I mean, some of you in this room may not have heard of this invitation that's been extended to you or have not responded to it. You know, maybe you've never really believed that God loves you or you struggle uh, to believe that um, he even cares about whether you're with him. Like maybe you think he's just sort of neutral. In this parable, Jesus makes it clear he does care. Maybe you do think of God as kind of that divine, you know, bureaucrat. You know, he just... He just cares about how well you follow the rules. Nothing could be further from the truth. God loves you. He's invited you to know him now and to spend eternal life with him. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, the barrier of sin has been removed. If we place our faith in Christ, we have been invited home. Maybe some of you have accepted the invitation. You've placed your faith in Christ, but you're still not quite living as if that's true you still sort of wonder, does he really love me? Does he really want me to be with him? You know, you might accept like, okay, one day I'll go to heaven and like at that point I'll experience God's love and everything will be good. But kind of in this season, I'm sort of on my own. It's very easy to fall into that thinking. I have, even if you've been a believer for many, many years, it's easy to get to that place. But that's not true either. Scripture tells us when you place your faith in Christ, Uh, The Holy Spirit indwells you. You, God is with you. He is in your life. He is involved. And we're invited into that relationship with God now. And yes, in the future, there will be a time where we experience fellowship with God in a new way, in the new heaven and earth. There won't be any sin or pain or death or anything anymore. All that stuff will be in the past. And so that will be a new thing. But his presence is with us now to enjoy and we can rely on him. Now, some of you in this room have accepted the invitation and you are growing in your faith and I am so thankful for that. Praise God for that. Your lesson from this parable comes from the servant. Look around you. Who has God placed in your life? Urge them. (laughs) Insist with them. Tell them about this invitation that has been extended to them. Tell them about God's love. Share your story of life change. Invite them to church. Tell them about Jesus. Remember, God wants his house full, and he wants to use you to fill it. I think that's the challenge for those of us who have faith in Christ. You see, it was God's plan all along to fill his house. This banquet imagery of salvation in Jesus' parable, it actually wasn't new. It was all over scripture. Um, I think Jesus' parable kind of put the finest point on it. But, you know, centuries earlier, the prophet Isaiah was talking about this, painting a similar picture of salvation, that one day God would do this. And look what he said. I just want to read it to you. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it on the screen. Isaiah 25, 6 to 9. He said this, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. He, Lord, has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. 
We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. You see, Isaiah was pointing forward to the day when God would free us from the shroud of life in this broken world, uh, free us from life with tears and shame and disgrace and death, a time when we would experience God's presence. Isaiah was talking about what Jesus would accomplish. And then Jesus tells this parable that reaffirms this very thing. God wants his house to be full. Everyone is invited, even those who can't earn their way in or pay him back in any way, which, by the way, is all of us. We could never pay back God for what he did for us through Christ. A relationship with Jesus is the only way to that table. It's the only bridge back to God. And as Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Jesus' disciple Peter said it this way in 2 Peter 3, 9. I love the way he puts this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to perish, to be apart from him. He wants everyone to repent, which means to turn toward him and follow him. He wants everyone in his house. And by the way, this isn't even the best part. The best part we see in other places in Scripture, look at this, in John 1, 12 to 13, it says this, to all who did receive him, that's Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. This is telling us through faith in Christ, we are invited into God's house to his table, not as any old guest. We are seated there as his beloved children, the apple of his eye, his pride and joy. That is who we are. Eternal life, life with Christ, it is not achieved through some abstract test. It's not about our good deeds outweighing our bad deeds. It is about responding to a personal invitation given to you by Almighty God, made possible by the sacrifice of his Son. And if you accept it, you are welcomed home joyfully with open arms by a heavenly Father who loves you beyond comprehension. God has invited all of us to be with him. He wants his house to be full. He wants everyone there. We just have to place our faith in Christ. We have to accept that invitation. It is a gift so unimaginable. I mean, we could think about it for eternity and still be surprised and amazed at it. I want to close with just one verse. Um, Jesus' disciple, John, wrote this in one of his letters, 1 John uh, chapter 3. And I just think it, it so sums up how we should feel about all this. He says this, 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I'm going to read that one more time. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I'm going to leave that up for a second, that verse. Now I just want you to reflect on that for a moment, just quietly. <laughs> what does that
does that tell you about God? What does that tell you?